Chapter Seven, Part Two of the History of Standard Oil, Volume One, by Ida Tarbell. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Crisis of eighteen seventy eight. The only thing which prevented a riot at this time and great destruction of property, if not of life, was the strong hand the Petroleum Producers Union had on the country. Fearing that if violence did occur, the different movements they had underway would be prejudiced, they sent a committee of twenty-five men to Harrisburg to see Governor Hardtramp. They laid before him and the Attorney General of the state the grievance of the oil producers in an appeal reviewing the history of the industry. They demanded that the United Pipelines be made to perform its duty as a public carrier, and the railroads be made to cease their discrimination against shippers both in the matter of rebates and in furnishing cars. They called the governor's attention to the fact that there were already existing laws touching these matters, which in their judgment met the case, and if the existing laws did not give them relief, that it was the plain duty of the executive to call a meeting of the legislature and pass such acts as would do so. Governor Hartranft was much stirred by the story of the producers. He went himself to the oil regions to see the situation, and in August directed the producers to put their demands into the form of an appeal. This was done, and it was decided to bring proceedings by writ of quo waranto against the United Pipelines, and by separate bills in equity against the Pennsylvania Railroad and the other lines doing business in the state. It was September before the state authorities began their investigation of the United Pipelines, the hearings being held in Titusville. Many witnesses summoned failed to appear, but enough testimony was brought out in this investigation to show that the railroads had refused to furnish cars for independence when they had them empty, and that the United Pipelines had clearly violated its duty as a common carrier. In his report on this investigation, the Secretary of Internal Affairs, William McCandless, rendered a verdict that the charges of the oil producers had not been substantiated in any way that demanded action. The indignation which followed this report was intense. It found a vent in the hanging and effigy of McCandless, who was universally known in the state as Buck. In the oil exchange at Parker on the morning of October 19, the figure of a man was found hanged by the neck to a gallows, and the producers left it hanging there all day so that they might jeer and curse it. Across the forehead of the effigy, in large blood-red letters, were the words, Pennsylvania Railroad. Pinned to the gallows there was a card bearing a quotation from Secretary McCandless's report. The charges of the oil producers have not been substantiated in any way that demands action. In Bradford, a huge effigy hung in the streets all day, and in the village of Tarport nearby another swayed on the gallows. They pulled down the effigy at Bradford and drew from a pocket what purported to be a check signed by John D. Rockefeller, president of the Standard Oil Company, in favor of Buck McCandless, or $20,000, and endorsed by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. That represented the price, they said, that McCandless got for signing the report. Throughout the oil country there was hardly an oil producer to be found not associated with the Standard Oil Company who did not believe that McCandless had sold himself and his office to the Standard Oil Combination for $20,000 and used the money to help in his congressional canvass. The excitement in the oil regions spread all over the country. 
Something of the importance the press attached to it may be judged from the way the New York Sun handled the question. For six weeks it kept one of the ablest members of its staff in the oil regions. Six columns of the first page of the issue for November 13 was taken up with the story of the excitement coupled with the full account of the South Improvement Company and the development of the Standard Oil Company out of that concern. On November 23 the first page contained four columns more under blazing headlines. Early in 1879 the hearing of the suits in equity brought by the Commonwealth against the various transportation companies of which the producers had been complaining were begun. The witnesses subpoenaed failed at first to appear, and when on the stand they frequently refused to reply. But it soon became apparent to them that the state authorities were in earnest and that they must answer or go to Europe. By March 1879 an important array of testimony had been brought out. Among the standard men who had appeared had been John D. Archbold, William Frew, Charles Lockhart, and J. J. Vandergriff. A score or more of producers also appeared. The most important witness from the railroad circles, and indeed the most important witness who appeared, was A. J. Cassett. Mr. Cassett's testimony was startling in its candor and its completeness, and substantiated in every particular what the oil men had been claiming, that the Pennsylvania Railroad had become the creature of the Standard Oil Company that it was not only giving that company rates much lower than to any other organization, but that it was using its facilities with a direct view of preventing any outside refiner or dealer in oil from carrying on an independent business. The same or similar conditions, not only in oil but in other products which led to these suits, led to investigations in other states. Toward the end of 1878 the Chamber of Commerce of New York City demanded from the legislature of the state an investigation of the New York railroads. This investigation was carried on from the beginning of 1879. The revelations were amazing. Before the Hepburn Commission, as it was called from the name of the chairman, was through with its work, there had appeared before it to give testimony in regard to the conduct of the Standard Oil Company and of the relation of the Erie and the Central Roads to it, H. H. Rogers, J. D. Archbold, Yabez A. Bostwick, and W. T. Scheide. A large number of independent oil men had also appeared. William H. Vanderbilt had been examined, and G. H. Blanchard, the freight agent of the Erie Road, had given a full account of the relation of the Erie to the Standard, perhaps the most useful piece of testimony after that of Mr. Cassett belonging to this period of the Standard's history. At the same time that the Pennsylvania suits were going on, and the Hepburn Commission was doing its work, the legislature of Ohio instituted an investigation. It was commonly charged that this investigation was smothered, but it was not smothered until H. M. Flagler had appeared before it and given some most interesting facts concerning rebates. A number of gentlemen who were finding it hard to do oil business also appeared before the Ohio Committee and told their stories. By April 1879, there had been brought out in these various investigations a mass of testimony sufficient in the judgment of certain of the producers to establish the truth of a charge which they had long been making, and that was that the standard was simply a revival of the South Improvement Company. Now the verdict of the Congressional Committee had been that the South Improvement Company was a conspiracy. 
therefore, said the producers, the Standard Oil Company is a conspiracy. Their hope had been, from the first, to obtain proof to establish this charge. Having this, they believed they could obtain judgment from the courts against the officials of the company and either break it up or put its members in the penitentiary. The more hot-headed of the producers believed they now had this evidence. If one will examine the testimony which had been given thus far in the course of the various examinations, one will see that there was reason for their belief. In the first place, it had been established that all the stockholders of the South Improvement Company, excepting four, were now members of the Standard Oil Combination. Indeed, the only persons holding high positions in the new combination at this date who were not South Improvement Company men were Charles Pratt, J. J. Vandergrift, H. H. Rogers, and John D. Archibald. The South Improvement Company had been a secret organization. So was the new Standard Alliance. That is, the most strenuous efforts had been made to keep it secret. For instance, the sale of the works of Lockhart, Warden, and Pratt to the Standard was kept from the public. Indeed, it was a year after these sales before even the Erie Railroad knew that Mr. Rockefeller had any affiliations besides those with Pratt and Company, and it made its contracts with him on this assumption. When purchases of refineries were made, it was the custom to continue the business under the name of the original concern. Thus, when Mrs. B. of Cleveland sold in 1878, as recounted in the last chapter, the persons selling were obliged to keep the sale secret even from the employees of the concern. The understanding was with regard to the sale of the property to the Standard Oil Company, said the shipping clerk in his affidavit, that it should not be known outside of their own parties that it was to be kept a profound secret, and that the business was to be carried on as if the B Oil Company was still a competitor. The secret rights with which the contract was made in 1876 between Mr. Rockefeller and Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle have already been described. To keep the relations of the various standard concerns secret, Mr. Rockefeller went so far in 1880 as to make an affidavit like the following. It is not true, as stated by Mr. Teagle in his affidavit, that the Standard Oil Company, directly or indirectly through its officers or agents, owns or controls the works of Warden, Prue and Company, Lockhart, Prue and Company, J. A. Bostwick and Company, C. Pratt and Company, Acme Refining Company, Imperial Refining Company, Camden Consolidated Company, and the DeVoe Manufacturing Company. Nor is it true that the Standard Oil Company, directly or indirectly through its officers or agents, owns or controls the refinery at Hunters Point, New York. It is not true that the Standard Oil Company, directly or indirectly through its officers or agents, purchased or acquired the Empire Transportation Company, or furnished the money therefor. Nor is it true that the Standard Oil Company inaugurated or began or induced any other person or corporation to inaugurate or begin a war upon the Pennsylvania Railroad Company or the Empire Transportation Company, as stated in the affidavit of Mr. Teagle. There may be a technical explanation of this affidavit, although the writer knows of none. There is certainly abundant testimony in existence that the works of Messrs. Pratt, Lockhart, and Warden, at least, had been bought long before this affidavit was made and paid for in Standard Oil Company stock, and that they were working in alliance with that company. It was shown in the last chapter that on October 17, 1877, 
the Standard Oil paid $2,500,000 in certified checks on the purchasing price of the plant of the Empire Transportation Company. While none of the other members of the Standard Oil Company examined in 1879 was quite so sweeping in his denials, all of them evaded direct answers. The reason they gave for this evasion was that the investigations were an interference with their rights as private citizens, and that the government had no business to inquire into their methods. Consequently, when asked questions, they refused to answer by advice of counsel. Ultimately, the gentlemen did answer a great many questions. But taking the testimony all in all, through these years, it certainly is a mild characterization to say that it totally lacks in frankness. The testimony of the Standard officials before the Hepburn Commission was so evasive that the committee, in making its report, spoke bitterly of the company as a mysterious organization whose business and transactions are of such a character that its members decline giving a history or description of it lest this testimony be used to convict them of a crime. The producers certainly were right in claiming that secrecy was a characteristic of the Standard as it had been of the South Improvement Company. The new Standard combination, like the South Improvement Company, aimed at controlling the entire refining interest. The coal oil business belongs to us, Mr. Rockefeller once told a recalcitrant refiner. His associates were saying the same on all sides. The object of the Standard Oil Company is to secure the entire refining business of the world, a member of the concern told B.F. Nye, an Ohio producer. The method the Standard depended upon to secure this control was the same as the method of the South Improvement Company special privileges in transportation. We have seen how intelligently and persistently Mr. Rockefeller worked to secure these special privileges until, in 1877, he had made with all the trunk lines contracts which in every particular paralleled the contracts which in January 1872 Messrs. Scott, Gold, Vanderbilt, and McClellan made with the South Improvement Company. He now had a rebate on every barrel of oil he shipped, and this was given with the understanding that the railroad should allow no rebate to any other shipper unless that shipper could guarantee and furnish a quantity of oil for shipment which would, after deduction of his commission, realize to the road the same amount of profit realized from the standard trade. He also had a drawback on every barrel his rival shipped. No clause in the South Improvement Company's contract with railroads had given more offense to the oil world than that which called for a drawback to the company on the oil shipped by outsiders. It will be remembered that the beneficiaries of this contract were to receive drawbacks of a dollar six cents a barrel on all crude oil that outside parties shipped from the oil regions to New York, and a proportionate drawback on that shipped from other points. The rebate system was considered illegal and unjust, but men were more or less accustomed to it. The drawback on other people's shipment was a new device, and it threw the oil region into a frenzy of rage. It did not seem possible that the Standard would attempt to revive this practice again, and yet when it had got its hands strongly on the four trunk lines, it made a demand for the drawback. It has already been recounted how, on February 5, 1878, four months after the Pennsylvania succumbed to the Standard's demand, Mr. O'Day wrote to Mr. Cassett, I here repeat what I once stated to you, and which I wish you to receive and treat as strictly confidential, 
that we have been for many months receiving from the New York Central and Erie Railroads certain sums of money, in no instance less than twenty cents per barrel, on every barrel of crude oil carried by each of these roads. Cooperating as we are doing with the Standard Oil Company and the trunk lines in every effort to secure for the railroads paying rates of freight on the oil they carry, I am constrained to say to you that in justice to the interests I represent, we should receive from your company at least twenty cents on each barrel of crude oil you transport. And Mr. Cassett, after seeing the freight bills showing that both the Central and Erie allowed a drawback, gave orders that the Pennsylvania pay one of twenty-two and a half cents. When Mr. Cassett was under examination in 1874, the examiner remarked, I understand, Mr. Cassett, that this twenty-two and a half cents paid to the American Transfer Company is not restricted to all oil that passed through their lines. No, sir, it is paid on all oil received and transferred by us. Among the interesting documents presented at this inquiry was a statement of the crude oil shipments over the Pennsylvania Road for February and March, 1878. They footed up to a total of 343,767.5 barrels. On this amount, a discount of 20 cents a barrel was allowed to the Standard Oil Company through its agent, the American Transfer Company. Among other agents who shipped this oil was H.C. Olin. In all, Mr. Olin shipped 29,876 barrels and on this the Standard Oil Company received twenty cents a barrel. That is, after Mr. Olin had paid for his oil, paid for having it carried by the pipeline to the railroad, and paid the railroad the full rate of freight without the commission the Standard received, the Pennsylvania was obliged to turn over to the Standard Oil Company twenty cents of the amount he had paid on each barrel. The examiner tried very hard to find out if there was a legitimate question why such an allowance should have been made to the American Transfer Company on oil it did not handle. We pay that, Mr. Cassett said, as a commission to them to aid in securing us our share of the trade. We pay it, said the comptroller, for procuring oil to go over the lines in which the Pennsylvania Railroad is interested as against the New York lines and the New York Central. Do you understand, the examiner questioned of one of the auditors, that the American Transfer Company secured to the Pennsylvania Road the traffic of the outside refiners of New York, mentioned in the statement quoted above? I never raised a question of that kind in my mind, answered the adroit auditor. But the answer was evident. The American Transfer Company had nothing whatever to do with the oil shipped by Mr. Olin or Ayers Lombard and Company or J. Rousseau or any one of the other independents mentioned in the statement, unless perchance that oil had come originally from the lines of the American Transfer Company. In that case, the shipper had paid the line for the service rendered at the time he bought the oil, the custom then and now. The tax was paid by the Pennsylvania solely because the Standard Oil Company had the power to demand it. The demand was made in the name of the American Transfer Company as a blind. Naturally, the proof that the Standard had revived the most obnoxious feature of the South Improvement Company aroused intense bitterness and disgust among the oil men. Another offensive clause of the 1872 contracts was that pledging the railroads to lower or raise the gross rates of transportation for such times and to such extent as might be necessary to overcome competition. Now, the new contracts of the Standard provided the same arrangement. 
that is, they stipulated that the rates were to be lowered if necessary, so as to place the standard on a parity with shippers by competing lines. The workings of the clause were illustrated when the producers got the equitable line through in 1878, the railroads dropping their charge to 80 cents a barrel, and in some cases even less. The producers certainly had evidence enough for their claim that the contracts of the South Improvement Company and the Standard Oil Company with the railroads were similar in every particular as far as principles were concerned, that they differed alone in the amounts of the rebates and drawbacks. There was plenty of evidence brought out also to show that the object of the Standard operations was like that of the South Improvement Company, keeping up the price of refined oil. Both combinations were formed to keep the refined article scarce on the market by controlling all the refineries and by refusing to sell under competition. The officials of the South Improvement Company stated under oath that they had hoped to raise the price 50 percent. The central organization hoped to put up the price of refined from 15 to 25 cents. As a matter of fact, that organization, when it finally got control of the market, put up the price considerably more. The spectacular demonstration in the winter of 1876 and 1877 of what could be done in keeping up the price of refined was still rankling in the minds of the oil men. They saw that it was by that coup that the Standard had gotten the ready money to pay for the plant of the Empire Transportation Company, the money to buy in whatever it wanted, the money to pay the 50% dividend to which one of its members testified in the Ohio investigation. They remembered that while the refiners had been selling refined around 30 cents a gallon, they had sold crude at less than four dollars a barrel. Little wonder then that they felt they had evidence that the Standard had actually done what they had always claimed it would do if it got hold of the refining interest as it planned. Even in the case where certain large producers had entered into a partnership with the Standard on condition that they paid them prices for crude commensurate with the price of refined, these producers claimed the agreement had not been kept. One of these cases came to light in a suit instituted in 1878. It seems that sometime in December 1874, the large oil company of H. L. Taylor & Company sold one-half interest in its property to the Standard Oil Company. The reason for the sale the plaintiffs stated in their complaint to be as follows. The extent of their, the Standard's business and control over pipelines and refineries, had enabled them to procure, and they had procured from the railways, more favorable terms for transportation than others could obtain. These advantages and facilities placed it within their power to obtain, and they did obtain, far better and more uniform prices for petroleum than could be obtained by the plaintiffs. The said organization and firms, by virtue of their monopoly of the business of refining and transportation of oil, had been at times almost the only buyers in the market, and at such times had been enabled to dictate and establish a price for crude oil far below its actual value, as determined by prices of refined oil at same dates, and they thus obtained a large share of the profits which should have fallen to the plaintiff and other purchasers. The sale was made, and in consideration of the foregoing premises, and upon the promise and agreement on the part of the defendants that the partnership thus formed, should have the benefit of the advantage and facilities of the said defendants, and the organizations and firms managed and controlled by defendants in marketing its oil that the firm should have to the extent of its production 
the advantage of the sales of refined by the defendants or said Standard Oil Company, either for present or future delivery, so that there should be at no time any margin or difference between the ruling price of refined oil and the price which defendants would pay the partnership for crude by it produced beyond the necessary cost of refining. This thing formed the inducement and the larger part of the consideration for the sale of said property to the defendants. The amount actually received for said interest was far beneath its actual value, and without the agreement on the part of the defendants to pay to the partnership for its product prices at all times commensurate with the prices of refined oil, they would not have sold the said interest nor entered into said partnership. The defendants also requested to do so have not only failed, neglected, and refused to comply with this agreement, but have, by false and erroneous statements, misled the plaintiffs and induced them to consent to the sale to them and to the Standard Oil Company of large quantities of crude petroleum produced by the partnership at prices far below its actual value, to the great loss and damage of the orators. That on or about December 6, 1876, Refined was selling at a price equivalent to $7 for crude oil, at which time plaintiffs called upon defendants for a compliance with their agreement and asked that they take or purchase 210,000 barrels of the production of the partnership at a price commensurate with the price of refined at that time. This defendants neglected and refused to do, and the partnership was forced to sell the same at prices varying from 3 to $4, making a loss to the partnership upon this one transaction of from 600000 to $1,000,000, for which said defendants neglect and refuse to account. That the said defendants for themselves and for the said Standard Oil Company and other organizations and firms aforesaid have since the formation of the partnership received from the railways a rebate or drawback in the shape of wheelage or otherwise at times as high as $1 per barrel upon all oil shipped by them to the seaboard that instead of using these advantages which they possess for the benefit and profit of the partnership, as they covenanted to do, they have used them against its interest by restraining trade, preventing competition, and forcing plaintiffs to accept any price which defendants, the said Standard Oil Company, or the other organizations aforesaid might offer for their production. That the amount of oil produced and sold by the partnership for the three years beginning with the date of its formation, and ending December 1, 1877, was 2,657,830 barrels of oil. That the profits of defendants upon oil refined by them during said period, taking into consideration the rebates and drawbacks received from the railways, have averaged at least $1 per barrel over and above the cost of refining, and at times as high as 4 and $5.00 that these profits under the partnership agreement that no margin should exist between crude and refined prices should to the extent of the production of the partnership have been paid by defendants to the partnership, that the amount lost by the partnership and realized by the defendants by reason of the failure and refusal of said defendants to comply with their agreement is not less than $2,500,000 for one half of which defendants should account to your orders but which they neglect and refuse to do so. Naturally enough, the producers now pointed out that the case of the H. L. Taylor Company was a demonstration of what they had claimed in 1872, when the South Improvement Company, alarmed at the uprising, offered them a contract, and what they had always claimed since when the Standard Oil offered contracts for oil on a sliding scale, viz. that such contracts 
were never meant to be kept, that they were a blind to enable the standard to make scoops such as they had made in the winter of 1876 and 1877. Taking all these points into consideration, first, that the Standard Oil Company, like the South Improvement Company, was a secret organization, second, that both companies were composed in the main of the same parties, third, that it aimed, like its predecessors, at getting entire control of the refining interests. Fourth, that it used the power the combination gave it to get rebates on its own oil shipments and drawbacks on the shipments of other people. Fifth, that it had arranged contracts which compelled the railroads to run out all competition by lowering their rates. Sixth, that it aimed to put up the price of refined without allowing the producer a share of the profits. Taking all these points into consideration, many of the producers, including the president of the Petroleum Producers Union, B. B. Campbell, and certain members of his council, came to the conclusion that, as they had sufficient evidence against the members of the Standard Combination, to ensure conviction for criminal conspiracy, they should proceed against them. Strenuous opposition to the proceedings, as hastily and ill-advised, developed in the council and the legal committee but the majority decided that the prosecution should be instituted. Mr. Scott and Mr. Cassett were omitted from the proposed indictment on the ground that they were already weary of the standard and would cease their illegal practices gladly if they could. On the twenty-ninth day of April, 1879, the grand jury of the county of Clarion found an indictment against John D. Rockefeller, William Rockefeller, Jabez A. Bostwick, Daniel O'Day, William G. Warden, Charles Lockhart, Henry M. Flagler, Jacob J. Vandergrift, and George W. Gertie. Gertie was the cashier of the Standard Oil Company. There were eight counts in the indictment and charged in brief a conspiracy for the purpose of securing a monopoly of the business of buying and selling crude petroleum and to prevent others than themselves from buying and selling and making a legitimate profit thereby a combination to oppress and injure those engaged in producing petroleum, a conspiracy to prevent others than themselves from engaging in the business of refining petroleum, and to secure a monopoly of that business for themselves, a combination to injure the carrying trade of the Allegheny Valley and Pennsylvania Railroad Companies by preventing them from receiving the natural petroleum traffic, to divert the traffic naturally belonging to the Pennsylvania carriers to those of other states by unlawful means, and to extort from railroad companies unreasonable rebates and commissions, and by fraudulent means and devices to control the market prices of crude and refined petroleum, and acquire unlawful gains thereby. Four of the persons mentioned in the indictment, Messrs. O'Day, Warden, Lockhart, and Vandergrift, all citizens of Pennsylvania, gave bail and early in June application was made to Governor Hoyt of Pennsylvania to issue a requisition before the Governor of New York for the extradition of the other five gentlemen. With damaging testimony piling up day by day in three states, and with an indictment for conspiracy hanging over the heads of himself and eight of his associates, matters looked gloomy for John D. Rockefeller in the spring of 1879. The good of the oil business certainly seemed to be in danger. End of chapter 7. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.